Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome. I'm Nicole Trujillo Pagan, a sociologist and associate professor at Wayne State University. Joining me today are Roger Biles and Mark Rose. Biles is a professor emeritus of history at Illinois State University who's published several books and articles on urban history, including Richard J. Daly, Politics, Race, and the Governing of Chicago, and The Fate of Cities, Urban America and the Federal Government, 1945 to 2000. And Rose is a professor of history at Florida Atlantic University. He teaches courses in urban, business, and political history. He's the author, co-author, or co-editor of more than eight books and 40 articles. Welcome, Professors Biles and Rose, and thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you, Nicole. So... The first question I, I'd like to, to understand is why you both wrote A Good Place to Do Business, The Politics of Downtown Renewal, since 1945. Can I start? And then I'm going to tell you how important Roger's work has been in framing the book, and then and then he can take over from there, okay? That's so good. I, I, I did my first book on the inter- on the development of the interstate highway system, which always included a, a very large urban redevelopment program, basically smashed down buildings and old warehouses and bring well-to-do, mostly white shoppers back, back downtown. And then, then in other books, I talked about what, what I what I called cities of cities of light and heat. Well, the counterpart to cities of light and heat were areas within those cities that were dark and cold, of which there were many. So Roger and I have known each other for a long time. We've t- we've been talking about doing work together. We co-edited some things, and then when I read Roger's most recent book on Mayor Harold Washington. I noticed he had that downtown focus. And what Mayor Washington had sought to do was shift some of the city's resources, political influence and cash to the outlying neighborhoods, which were predominantly African-American and Latin American. But he found that a very difficult thing to do. Well, then when Roger and I were talking about doing a book together that his idea from the mayor Harold Washington book just seems so central. So Roger, you take over from there. Well, in doing, yeah, in doing the Washington book, uh, it seemed to me that the, uh, the really underlying story there was the tension between, uh, downtown renovation, um, and, and suitable attention to the neighborhoods. And uh, Mayor Harold Washington, who was the first African mayor, African-American mayor of Chicago, uh, had campaigned as a reformer and as someone who uh, was going to uh, give full attention to the neighborhoods, including an, an awful lot of poor neighborhoods, um, and somewhat de-emphasize uh, the uh, attention on the downtown. Um, and so I came away from that book with the idea that this was one of the preeminent themes in American cities during the time of deindustrialization. And so when Mark and I talked about this, we thought it would be great to apply those ideas to a handful of cities and see what we found, not only found uh, what we found about the, the impact of deindustrialization on those cities, but also what those cities attempted to do about it and, and how successful they ended up being. 
with, I think, always in the back of our minds, this notion of aggrandizement of the central business district versus uh, attention to the neighborhoods where, where people actually live. Yeah, I'm interested in this. Uh, the when you talk about this period of deindustrialization, your your title puts us at the period after 1945, um, and you, you know that post-war urban renewal was a moment in time. So, what was this moment, and what other ones do you cover in your book? Mark, are you? Uh... No, no. It, it, it was a moment. As a formal political enterprise, there was federal legislation, there was state legislation, but the idea of renovating or improving the downtown extended from maybe the late 1920s right up to the present day. So, for example, in in Detroit, the uh, a number of influential business people in the 1910s and 1920s undertook programs through the city of widening highways, creating the art museum, and so forth. And those those ideas extended into the 50s and 60s in the form of extra wide uh, rights of way for for expressway, and then the convention center, but the idea of the downtown as the central point for urban people, the place to invest, another phrase I like, a place to go to have fun, a place for dates, a place for eating out. That idea extends from the 20s up to the present day, but it never really came to fruition in most of our cities. The suburbs, in that sense, worn out. Yeah, and I think Mark is right in in emphasizing the fact that deindustrialization goes back uh, many decades. And you know, in the uh, well, in the historical literature, for example, there's been an awful lot written about deindustrialization. <clears throat> excuse me, as a post World War II phenomenon, and that's fair enough. But I think we also need to pay attention to the fact that um, that these ideas were being kicked around before then. But at least this is my my take on it. Uh, you have the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, cities simply don't have the resources. In fact, nobody, no level of government, city, state, federal, has the resources to help improve cities. And then along comes World War II. And again, it's all hands on deck and everybody is pouring resources into the war effort. So it's, it's really not until after World War II that it seems to become possible uh, to address the really big problems in the cities. And in, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, city leaders are looking around and they're looking at a, at a landscape that hasn't really been tended to for a long time. Uh, new housing hasn't been built. Roads haven't been repaired. Bridges haven't been repaired. Again, the Great Depression, World War II have played a leading role in this. And so after World War II, the city leaders are saying, okay, now's the time to address some of these issues. And what are we going to do? Um, our cities are not looking very good. I mean, there's a lot of blight. Uh, there are a lot of crumbling infrastructures and so on and so forth. What can we do? How can we turn the cities around? So there's this song by Petula Clark who, who talks about the downtown area as being a very exciting place to be. And it almost takes on this timelessness that you're both discussing when you talk about cities. If it seems we're all in love with downtowns, you call it a good place to do business. But is that really true? Is, or is that the wrong question that we're asking? Well, I think it was no. Oh, go, go, go ahead. Okay, I'll start. Uh, I think that traditionally that had been the case. Uh, the central business district, the downtown, was always the place where people went. Uh, to conduct business. And it had been that way for a long time. But as I said a few minutes ago, uh, by the 1940s, 1950s, uh, uh, these downtowns had really begun to deteriorate. 
they weren't necessarily anymore the places where people went to have fun. Uh, and of course, this goes hand in hand with the rise of the suburbs. Uh, people are now going uh, to the suburbs uh, to live, to shop, and in many instances to work. And so there is this sort of panic. Uh, I don't think that's too strong a word. There's a, there's a real concern among downtown businessmen and politicians and, and urban folk generally that the downtown is starting to really look bad. And if the downtown isn't thriving, if you don't have that strong center at the core of the downtown, they're afraid that that really bad things are going to happen. You know, everybody wants what Petula Clark sings about. We want people to go downtown and have a good time and go to movies and go out to dinner, go dancing and all this sort of thing. But when this seems to dry up, when it begins to disappear, then people get very worried. And I think that's the the phenomenon that Mark and I are talking about. I think you, you have a term, you, you call it downtown first approach. Can you tell us more about that? Roger, go okay. right ahead. Um, yeah, there was the belief on the part of many people at that time that the way to revive cities was to revive the downtown first. Uh, if the downtown came back, then the rest of the city would, would fall along. And, uh, you know, this begins more than any place else in Pittsburgh, uh, interestingly, after World War II. And there's much talk about the so-called Pittsburgh Renaissance. Pittsburgh, of course, throughout much of its history had been this dirty, grimy, uh, steel-making center. And it was really a a fairly <laughs> uh, disgusting place to live in, in, in many regards. People talked about um, uh, the smoke levels and the soot levels and airplane pilots talked about hating to fly into uh, Pittsburgh because of bad visibility and so forth. And then after World War II, uh, a group, a very small group of Pittsburghers uh, got together and formed something called the Allegheny Conference on Community Development. And this was spearheaded really by, by two most important people, Richard King Mellon, who was one of the wealthiest people in the country, and David Lawrence, who was the mayor of Pittsburgh. And these two men worked with a handful of other very important people in Pittsburgh to... Uh, institute this renaissance, and they, they cleared out the downtown, they solved the smoke problem, uh, they built gleaming skyscrapers, they cleaned it up, and all of a sudden people from all over the country were agog at what was going on in Pittsburgh, and newspapers and magazines wrote about the Pittsburgh miracle, and people from around the country, from other big cities, came to Pittsburgh to see it for themselves. And for all of these folks, the lesson was very clear. If you want to, if you want to improve the cities, that's where you start. You go to the downtown. Can I talk, let me talk around a couple of elements here. So one of the things I like to tell my students, my, my undergrad, my grad students about is the downtown department store of, of the 1920s as a place for mostly well-to-do, almost exclusively white women to go shopping sometimes two and three times a week. And not only could they go shopping, but there were spectacular lunchrooms up on the top of the department stores, lengthy lunches, see friends. And then the stores also provided delivery services. A lot of the women still came in uh, on, uh, on, not on the subway, on the trolley. Somebody else brought the boxes to their homes within a day or two. Well, by, by, the, by the 1940s, those wealthier white women were no longer coming downtown to shop. Uh, the downtown, they judged, uh, was older, grimier. There were already some 
newer stores out in smaller malls, the really large malls had not yet been constructed. But above all, what, what those women continued to seek was an all white shopping and lunching atmosphere. And so the department store was one of the places in which race and space were negotiated on a day-to-day basis among those shoppers. And, and at the same time, for example, some of the St. Louis department stores we discovered did not integrate their lunchrooms until the 1950s, late 1950s. They also used to hold fashion shows in, 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 on the weekdays in, in the afternoons, and mostly white women came to watch fashion shows, go out for lunch. Well, they too were not integrated until, oh, 1957, 58. But by then, the attractiveness of the downtown as a place for what I call people like themselves to go shopping, that had begun to, to fade because people like themselves could increasingly go shopping at malls out in the suburbs. And those malls and those new department stores out there were developed by the same downtown department stores. So race was just central to these redevelopment projects. So yes, of course, were cities smoky? Did Richard King Mellon uh, seek to abolish, um, get rid of the smoke? But the other thing that, that, that these people sought to develop, to demolish, was the areas they called, described as blighted. And blight is is a very racialized term, and you, you didn't need uh, a, a, a adult Americans in the 1940s and 50s and 60s did not need a dictionary to understand that the word blight meant an African American neighborhood. And so, what what all, in all in each of our cities, whether it's Richard King Mellon or St. Louis or the people in Chicago. What they want to do in some way is close off the downtown to the African-American shopper and make it a desirable place for the European-American shopper, especially the wealthier European-American shopper. Professor, you're going to excuse me. That doesn't make sense. If I am selling at a department store, I want as many clients as I as I can get, right? Why would I? Why would I try to create an exclusive environment for a relatively small demographic? You, on the surface, what you're saying sounds right. But but let, let, let's take for example uh, property values. Race was and remains constitutive of a property value. If you owned a downtown building, you knew who shopped in the building, who rented from you. And simple race, simple racism permeated every nook and cranny of American business and downtown life. So it's not just a matter of sales and profits. It was also fundamentally a matter of who came into the store and who would refuse to go into that store. So much of the story we are telling is a story about efforts to exclude African-Americans from the ability to, um, to buy suits and dresses and so forth. Let me just jump in there quickly, if I might, and expand on what Mark is saying. Um, the thing that, that the merchants, the downtown merchants are saying over and over again is we've got to keep undesirables out of the central business district because they're going to scare off our good customers. We don't want, you know, we don't want African-Americans in our stores, we don't want them at our lunch counters. Uh, they even go so far in some of our cities as to buy up property around the central business district and create what they refer to as barriers so that African-Americans can't live close to downtown. And so therefore, they're not going to be inclined to, to go downtown to, 
to purchase those kinds of things. And one other thing occurred to me when Mark was speaking a minute ago, he was talking about blight. This hadn't occurred to me before, but you know, when we talk about blight in this way, we're basically talking about what today we call dog whistles, right? Hmm. Uh, blight meant something for those folks back then without having to actually say it. Let me ask you a little bit more. I appreciate that we are thinking about how um, these post-industrial cities are struggling to bring back their downtown. But by thinking about race, we are necessarily talking about different conditions in Pittsburgh, right, where there's a renaissance, and your other cases, Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland. Can, can, um, can you help us understand what the distinction is in these cases? I'm not sure that there was a distinction, Nicole. Uh, we use Pittsburgh because mayors and business people from every large city in the United States and around the world went to Pittsburgh to see the Pittsburgh Renaissance. And they took tours of the city. They went to see the new convention center, where the new hotel would be located, the expressway. So think about it another way. These are people who were accustomed to buying and selling property, looking at blueprints. This is what they did for a living. And yet they still took these three and four day treks by train and by airplane for, to, to, to be given these tours of, of Pittsburgh. And what I think they really wanted to know was how is it that Richard Mellon and David Lawrence, the mayor, how had they organized their city's politics to be able to demolish African-American neighborhoods, acquire property, build convention centers, widen expressways, bring in new hotels? They wanted to talk about the nitty gritty politics of making that happen. So. The idea of an urban of urban renewal, as I said earlier, extend, it, it extends back to 1900 and to at least to 1900, and to the to the new uh, to the new railroad station in New York, one of the earliest urban renewal program, because it was built built constructed on land occupied by uh, unhoused people and low income people. They were easy to scatter. And then the new railroad station was supposed to serve as a gateway to the, to, to the city. So you, you went to Pittsburgh, whether you were from St. Louis or Chicago or Philadelphia, to learn the, the political secret. How did these guys make that happen? And in the course of 10 years, demolish properties they judged unsightly, remove a population that they wanted removed and seemed to, at the same time to be boosting downtown property values, being able to talk about um, full rentals, uh, full occupancy rates at hotels. Maybe this will be a good, a good illustration too. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier that after the war, Pittsburgh formed something called the Allegheny Conference on Community Development, which was an organization composed of the leading businessmen in the city. And this was a big part, it was thought, of the Pittsburgh Renaissance. Well, after all of these other mayors came to Pittsburgh and they saw what was going on there, they went back to their cities and did the exact same thing. So the St. Louis people went back to St. Louis and they created something called Civic Progress Incorporated. The people in Chicago went back to their city and they created the Chicago Central Area Committee. In Philadelphia, it was something called the Greater Philadelphia Movement. In Detroit, it was called Detroit Renaissance, New Detroit, Detroit Economic Development Corporation, there were a number of these organizations that crept up. And in Cleveland, it was the, it was the Greater Cleveland Growth Association, or uh, as Mayor Stokes called it, Cleveland Now. 
So all of these businessmen went back to their communities and they said, okay, we've got to do what, what Pittsburgh has done because it works. And the first step in doing that is bringing the, the leading lights of the business community together. They're all going to come together because they're good altruistic uh, citizens of the community and they want to save the downtown. And so they're going to jump in mostly on a volunteer basis. They're not getting paid for this, but they're doing it because they believe this is best for the community. And of course, it's also best for them because they're businessmen. And from, from that point, I think you see in one community after another, and this was one, I think, of our major findings, um, uh, the cities are doing essentially the same things. There becomes a kind of article of faith um, about how you go about this. This is what you have to do to get the desired result. And so for the most part, uh, there are some, some differences here and there, but for the most part, these cities are behaving in much the same ways. So then this, this, this political secret is successful. This idea that what's good for business is good for the city works across your cases. No. <laughs> How's that? How's that for <laughs> so, so let's let's distinguish the secret that uh, people like Mellon and Mayor Lawrence thought they had, and then the reality right. as the cities experienced right. it. Um, I think I think in the beginning of that process, in the in the beginning of the time period in, that we're talking about, that is the rather early. Uh, post-World War II period, there was a firm belief that this was it. This was the secret sauce, right? Um, and I think an awful lot of people held on to that belief for a long, long period of time. But after a while, it became apparent to people living in those communities, and it certainly became apparent to Mark and to me, that what was good for the downtown was good for the downtown. And there were an awful lot of communities, an awful lot of neighborhoods in our cities that did not seem to be benefiting a whole lot from the aggrandizement of downtown. Right, Mark? Exactly. So, for example, Englewood in Chicago or the areas just outside of downtown Detroit. What's the, what's the relationship then between the residents of the rest of the city with their, you know, elected leaders, their mayors? Mm. What, what's happening as they see all of their tax dollars, right, going to fuel development in one part of the city? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me just start it because Roger knows this topic really well. But let, let me let me begin with, with one idea. The downtown business people uh, have staffs of executives who work with them in their planning. They have law firms who work with them. The Allegheny Conference uh, has attorneys associated with it. The mayors work with them. Urban Renewal was one of several activities that they undertook on a nearly full-time basis. They were about the business of building downtown businesses. But people who work in factories, sell cars at auto dealerships, are in and out of employment, they're not necessarily well organized. And when they were well organized, they had trouble reaching across the city to work with other partly well organized people. So if something happened in one part of Detroit outside of the central business district, those people might seek assistance in another area, but those people were not necessarily forthcoming. And so you have the downtown business people for whom this is a full-time activity, and then you have the people in, in the outlying areas for whom it's a part-time area. So Roger did a spectacular job on the area that became the University of Illinois at Chicago. So Roger can pick up from there. Okay. And <clears throat> Nicole, I think 
you know, your, your question here begins to get back to the question of race. Um, an awful lot of these neighborhoods that are being ignored, right, in the process of shoveling resources into the downtown, an awful lot of those ignored neighborhoods are minority neighborhoods, African-American, uh, Latin American, and so on and so forth. And I think <clears throat> part of your question is, uh, well, what are those folks thinking about this? Surely they can't be happy as, you know, the downtown is starting to look nice and glamorous and more people are coming in and, and tourists are coming in and, and so on and so forth. But their lives are not improving. You know, their snow is not, uh, is not being bulldozed and their garbage isn't being picked up. And the police are not responding uh, rapidly to calls and all of those service issues. And, you know, this is one of the big, I think one of the big points that we wanted to make in the book, and that is simply that um, this phenomenon of downtown first did not work to the benefit of all of the residents of the city. It just didn't. Um, you know, I, one of the questions that that we asked ourselves at the very beginning of this project as we decided on five cities that we were going to focus on. Well, one of the natural questions I think was, how did these five cities fare in comparison? Were there some cities that, that did much better um, at downtown redevelopment? Were there cities where, where that failed? And overall, what did that mean for those cities? Well, in the process of doing our research, we talked to a lot of other historians we knew and, and other people who weren't historians. And we told them, well, we're taking a look at these five cities. We're looking at Chicago and St. Louis, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Cleveland. And we want to see how they attempted to deal with um, urban decline and how successful they were. Well, inevitably, people would ask us, well, who did well and who didn't do well of these, of these cities? And over and over uh, in the course of those conversations, people said, well, Chicago seems to have done very well. Chicago seems to be the big success story, whereas... Uh, Detroit, not so much. St. Louis, not so much, uh, and so forth. And we grappled with that for a long time, and, and there does seem to be something to that, because downtown Chicago, uh, the loop and the surrounding area in Chicago is spectacular. It's beautiful. Uh, it's busy, it's thriving, so on and so forth. But the answer to us was, okay, how does this look when you back up and look at the whole city? Uh, downtown Chicago is just a fraction of the entire landscape. What's life like for the millions of people who live there, whether it's Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland and so forth? And time after time, even in Chicago, we end up saying, well, you know, it's not that great. So would you say one of the findings of your book is that overall, the plan that we followed um, about focusing on downtown for the past 70 years didn't work? It, it worked in part for, as Roger said, it worked in part for the loop and nearby, nearby areas going north on the lake, a few, few other places. But most neighborhoods in Chicago are really very comparable to most neighborhoods in Detroit or St. Louis, uh, lower income black and white people who struggle to get by. And, and here's the, the key point, they pay the taxes and uh, purchase the retail products that go to help fund that spectacular downtown, but from which they receive 
few benefits. So as Roger pointed out in his Mayor Harold Washington book, a vast proportion of the city's budget went into this area that's maybe three or four miles by two or three miles. And then the remaining 24 miles, very little. The, the remaining 2 million persons secured very little benefit for their jobs, their, their the taxes they paid, and on and on. So do we think that do we think that Richard King Mellon was sincere um, and people like him in the other cities? Were they sincere about wanting to do something for the city overall? Or was this just the way that they talked about their own business interests? I, I think I think it's both. They were sincere wanting to do something for the city as they understood that city. So speaking generally, sure, if, if Mr. Mellon were to join us today, he'd say, yes, I'm, I, I think of the way we phrased it in the book was Mellon was, it seemed as if he was almost born to remodel uh, Pittsburgh. He was so involved with, with local activities, but that was not a vision. His vision of a remodeled Pittsburgh was not one shared by people living two or three miles from downtown or nearby whose homes were demolished by for, for expressways or new skyscrapers. So yes, he was sincere. It's in the way he understood what a renewed, what a renewed city ought to look like. It ought to look like a place I want to take my friends uh, out to go out for a wonderful business dinner. I think one of the problems we we run into here, of course, is how do you parse uh, the ideas of, of these individual people? How do you decide how much of it is self-interest, how much of it is altruism? You know, I'm inclined to think that these people were genuinely convinced that what they were doing would benefit the city. It would also benefit them and their business interests, but I don't think that they felt that that, that was necessarily a contradiction. You know, the central business district was thriving. Their downtown located businesses were doing well. The city would, would be uh, brought up by that. Um, I think they believed that what they were, for the most part, I think they believed that what they were doing was the right thing. And I, and, and I think that they believe that the mayors and the other influentials in those cities believe that. Interestingly, you know, again, regardless of race, you look, for example, at Coleman Young in Detroit and Michael White in Cleveland. And these were black mayors who jumped on the downtown bandwagon and really without any hesitation uh, worked very hard to bring money into the downtowns. You think about Detroit, you think about the Renaissance Center and, and, uh, and all of the downtown improvements along the riverfront. Uh, Coleman Young said over and over again, you, um, you regenerate the riverfront and the rest of the city will fall in line. Well, I think he was wrong. But... I think he was sincere in saying that. And again, one could say in defense of Coleman Young and, and White and others, did they see a better alternative? And what, what might that alternative have been? Mm. I wonder that these mayors aren't seeing alternatives in relation to their constituents. We started off this conversation, for instance, talking about... Um, um, I'm sorry. Uh, what was his name? The mayor in Chicago who cared about the oh. downtown, who cared about the neighborhoods. Harold Washington. Washington. Sorry, right. Harold Washington. Right. So, you know, here you have a mayor who's thinking about his constituents. It seems like the mayors that we're talking about in all of these cases feel their only constituent are the, are the businessmen that they're working with. What do these public-private partnerships look like? Anyway, what, what what role is the mayor playing in all of these cities in trying to navigate the people that they represent, their interests? 
I don't think we need, you know, we, we shouldn't just single out the mayors. I think the mayors are, are very important in all of this, but city councils are, are very much a part of the story too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these local government officials played a very important role by uh, attempting to bring business into the downtown, and they could do that in lots of ways. They could do it by giving tax breaks to corporations, um, by providing other kinds of incentives for businesses to locate or relocate in the central business district. There, uh, there's something called TIFFs. Uh, tax increment financing, which was a little kind of a, a cutesy way of of playing around with taxes and 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 guiding money into certain areas and deferring the taxes until later and so on and so forth. Uh, the public private partnerships that you mention um, uh, were very important, and the role played by the public figures were important because they provided incentives, they provided land, they provided services, they made it possible for the private entities to come into the downtown. How do these? How do these? Um, you I, I forgot if you called them goodies. Whether it's the tax breaks, the incentives, the tips, how do they change over this seventy-year period? In a nutshell, they increased, they grew. Um, in terms of the numbers uh, of incentives offered, and they also increased in dollar amounts. And what we also see happening, and this is a phenomenon that I think we're all sort of familiar with, uh, cities began competing with one another for businesses. So if, if Amazon wants to build you know, a huge facility, then they throw it open for bids and cities compete. Um, that happened a few years ago. We, I think we all remember that. And that's sort of the culmination of what we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to know what role then these, you know, in all of these cities, you see um, examples of urban unrest, right, in the late 60s. How did this change this trajectory, right, about public-private partnerships, the business uh, men and the, and the um, mayors and the city councils. How did those moments of civil unrest disrupt this narrative about downtown first development, if at all? I, I think it intensified uh, the downtown uh, first uh, emphasis. Downtown had to be uh, even more gleaming, even more attractive. Uh, videos, uh, TV programs of um, army troops patrolling through cities was, well, to flip our title around, bad for business. And uh, an urban legend grew up that those so-called riots of of the mid and late 60s were what drove uh, more affluent white householders out of the city. Probably not so to any great extent, what, what I think, what we think drew, uh, urged white householders to leave was the confrontation in their own minds with the idea that they would no longer own the downtown, that they would have to shop with African-Americans, uh, eat in the same restaurants, and that in fact, an African-American man, maybe some other time a woman, but that they would become mayors and city council office holders and so forth. So the it, it put an even greater, downtown business people had even greater interest in making the downtown into a great place to shop, go out for dinner, ha- have some fun. Let me pick up on one other thing. The earlier incentives for downtown redevelopment were in the urban renewal programs. Those were federal substantially federally funded. In later periods, after the, after the diminution of the urban renewal funds, you've got the tax increment financing. But there was always the interstate highway system, at least from the mid-50s until the mid-70s. Those, were, those roads were financed on a 90-10 basis. So the interstate highway was not just a way of moving traffic, as important as that was, but also a way 
to use federal dollars, state tax, gasoline tax dollars, to demolish the areas around the downtown, which every downtown business person and mayor supported, again, saying, uh, we, will, we will restore downtown business. And the interstate at the same time will serve as another one of those barriers uh, against uh, African-American and Latin American encroachment. Nicole, let me respond to, uh, to your last question by taking a bit of a, of a look at what happened in Detroit. So, of course, in 1967, there was this huge race riot in Detroit, one of the worst, arguably the worst, um, in the decade of the red-hot 60s. And it was absolutely devastating for, uh, for people in Detroit. Uh, people killed, property lost, um, and so on and so forth. After that happened, it, it, to me, it's very instructive that the movers and shakers uh, in Detroit didn't get together and say, oh my gosh, look, look what the people are doing here. Look what they're saying. Look what their behavior is telling us. We've got to improve services in the neighborhoods. We've got to improve this and improve that. We've got to make sure that money is distributed more equitably throughout the city. They didn't do that. Instead, uh, Henry Ford II, who was arguably the most important figure in the city at that time, um, started uh, calling the other big businessmen in town. And they got together and they formed this organization called Detroit Renaissance Incorporated. And they said, you know, this is unacceptable. We've got to do something to restore civil peace and to save our city. And so what, what's the big thing that comes out of that businessmen's uh, association? The Renaissance Center. Well, that's another story in itself, of course. Uh, but the Rensen uh, certainly uh, didn't do a whole lot for neighborhoods. And it didn't do much for the poor. Um, but I think it's, it's a classic example of how these downtown uh, officials and, and the wealthy policymakers responded to violence and responded to unrest. Um, they sort of basically doubled down on what they'd been doing, thinking they just have to do more of it. You know, there's a sense that the um, people in a city are demanding things that they're not getting in the wake of 67 in the case of Detroit. I, I wonder what happens when we lose that federal funding you were talking about for the, um, for the interstates, for the interstate highway, and we become even more dependent on these businesses. Like, you know, you talked about um, the Illiches and uh, Dan Gilbert in the case of Detroit. What happens when the city is even more reliant on business than it was before. That, that's a great, great point, Nicole. So you get people like uh, Mr. Illich, Mr. Gilbert in Detroit. They, in effect, become uh, the city's planning and construction department. And the other, so that that, that was one feature. Uh, you the, uh, the the word entrepreneur uh, takes on uh, an even more lustrous quality. Uh, by the 1980s and 1990s, replacing in part government business partnerships. So now uh, these entrepreneurial figures, are they're going to lead us to uh, a restored downtown. There's another one other element uh, Roger and I worked through, which were the use of the hospitals as urban renewal districts. So up to the late 1960s, hospitals were places you, local places you went when you were ill and you, you needed to be repaired, made well. But beginning somewhere in the late 60s, early 1970s, hospitals emerged as urban renewal districts. So the University of um, Rush Medical Center in Chicago was the largest Illinois medical district. Uh, Barnes Jewish in, in St. Louis, University of Pennsylvania Hospital uh, in Philadelphia. 
they had the authority to sell bonds and clear areas much in the way uh, as had been done earlier for those urban renewal programs or interstate highway programs. And the idea was that they would clear the area around. The, I mean, the hospitals had a choice. They're either going to stay there and redevelop the areas. as This is as they understood it. Or they were going to move out. So they determined, given the level of investment that they already had downtown, they were going to remain downtown and then, like the department stores, build these satellite hospitals. And the idea was that if you were just a little ill, you would go to a satellite center for Barnes or Penn or or Johns Hopkins, wherever. But if you were a little more ill, you would go first to the outlining outlying center and then eventually be funneled downtown for major kinds of medical undertakings, surgeries, and so forth. And that in that way, they could maintain some control over the affluent, mostly white suburbanite who had insurance or cash. So again, even, even in hospital care, urban renewal and race were, were at the center. Where the hospitals were less successful was the idea, starting in the 80s and 90s, that they were going to emerge as biotechnology centers, that they would be able to take their lab discoveries and translate those into new pharmacies, new procedures, and so forth. Didn't work out for most of them. Uh, Silicon Valley had a head start on them. Boston had a head start on them. And so, for example, part of the um, high-tech center in Chicago, That's th those are now two Hyatt hotels. And in St. Louis, uh, it's, it's become a, a shopping center. Uh, state law has had much to do with these things. But the hospitals were successful as urban renewal agencies, as agencies where you started in the suburbs, funneled your way downtown. The other, the other element with which hospitals dealt was state and federal law. If they were going to treat every patient, uh, in, an indigenous patient, regardless of their ability to pay, then they would also need some some money-making activities. So it was either going to be the biotech, which did not work out, or high-paying, mostly white patients who arrived either with cash or with an insurance card. Not that different from the way the downtown department stores behaved or the, the way um, the, the earlier business people behaved. But what, but what it also, what we also came to see, well known, is so many central city residents lack basic medical care. And Nicole, you know, the, oh, I was just going to say that your question about, you know, what happens when federal dollars dry up is a very good one, because in the early post-World War II years, late 40s, 1950s, up to about 1965 or so. That was the heyday of urban renewal. But it was also a period of, of great interstate highway building and other federal programs as well that funded the, uh, the destruction of blight and the building of money-making properties. But then after in, in another uh, book, I've argued after about 1965 or 66, in other words, uh, during Lyndon Johnson's administration, after that, what you see is that the amount of federal money allocated to urban America consistently declines. And that consistent decline uh, includes Democrats as well as Republicans, it's true of every presidency. And so basically what's happening is that cities are now facing um, a noose, a tightening noose 
um, because they are getting fewer and fewer dollars from the federal government. They're getting fewer and fewer dollars from state governments because the state governments are getting fewer and fewer dollars from the federal government. And so all of a sudden, uh, the mayors in these big cities are faced with the realization that they have to come up with the resources themselves. And where are they going to get those kinds of resources? Well, as the cities, of course, are shrinking and as people are fleeing to the suburbs, the, the middle classes and the upper middle classes who are fleeing to the suburbs are taking their tax dollars with them. So at the very time that cities desperately need more resources, they have fewer tax dollars to work with. And the long and short of it is that the cities increasingly turned to private sources. They turned to this idea of public-private uh, partnerships because that's where the money was that they needed. So here's what I hear you saying. We lose federal um, tax dollars. We are developing all of these incentives for businesses to relocate in our downtown areas at the expense of taxpayers who live in the city. And then adding insult to injury, we are going to um, have uh, focus our, our other development on universities and hospitals that aren't paying taxes. So help me understand how all of these otherwise intelligent people feel that by developing hospitals, um, you know, eds and meds, and developing downtown, the rest of the city will benefit. Help me. I mean, it's almost, you know, the white elephant in the room. I'm sorry to, to persist, but how does this make sense? How does trickle-down economics make sense? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my answer. And this comes back to you. Is that what it is? Really? Is that what it is? That, is that, is that what well, you I think there's, a, there's certainly an element to that. Yes. I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, were these businessmen uh, just greedy businessmen or were they, in fact, concerned with the well-being of their communities? And, and I think Mark and I basically both said there's some of both. I do believe that there were an awful lot of people who thought that this was the best way of improving the cities or saving the cities, as they said then. Of course, it's the best way to do it. Look at Pittsburgh. Look what they've done. You know, it works. We have to do this. And so your question basically, I think, is, you know, OK, I'll buy that for a while. But as decades go by and exactly. yeah, the, 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 the trickling isn't coming down into the neighborhoods, we seem to have a problem here. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't understand 70. And we're still I mean, because everything that you're talking about is exactly what Detroit has been doing, of course, that federal government paying for blight removal, literally using those terms. So it's just I, I mean, it doesn't. I don't understand. Mark, <laughs> We're intelligent people here on this call. Mark, explain it to I us. I don't understand. <laughs> you, you, you know what, Nicole? I think you do. We, we do understand. It, it just seems so incongruous to us. Right. So we want to say, well, these are really smart people. But smartness doesn't necessarily give us wisdom or for, farsightedness. It, it maybe makes us clever at solving some contemporary problem. But, but as Roger pointed out, visit Pittsburgh. Look at those shiny glass and aluminum buildings. Look, look, at, the, look at the crowds in the remaining retail shops. Uh, but if you went a little bit farther with that, it, it came to pass that the city was actually operating at a deficit. They were taking funds from current operations to, to fund their version of renewal. So they knew something wasn't exactly right, but hey, tomorrow it's going to work. We, we have to have faith. Uh, well, on the note of faith. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, blind faith. I, I do. I want to... Um, 
repeat again, it was just such a pleasure to read your book. It was very well written. There's so much to, to learn from all of these cases. And I got to understand, what are you guys working on now? What, which, where should we follow you next? Roger, why don't you, you explain Well, we, you know, we are, we are staying with another uh, depressing topic. Um, <laughs> as we are wont to do, um, we are doing a comparative study of two uh, manufacturing regions in the Midwest that have fallen on hard times during this period of deindustrialization. One of them is what's known as the Calumet region, which extends from Chicago around the southern tip of Lake Michigan into Gary and Hammond, Indiana, and so on and so forth. And the other region is the area right across the Mississippi River from St. Louis in southern Illinois, which is known as the Metro East region. And we are looking at those two regions and, again, asking some of the same questions um, how have, has government and how have politics attempted to deal with these uh, disruptive changes? Is there hope at the end, at the light, light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and so forth? Well, we'll be looking for that. We'll be looking for the next book to talk about on the New Books Network. I'm so grateful that you guys joined us today, um, and that you helped us understand these really important dynamics that um, clearly trace beyond, you know the uh, the immediate 40, 50 years that you suggest in, in, in the title of your book. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so, so much, Nicole. It was a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for creating this opportunity for Thank us. you. Have mm -hmm. a good one. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.